10. We are now progressing through our study of the life of Christ in a chronological sense. Matthew 10, we'll begin reading in verse 1 and read down through verse 4. Looks like we've got a little ring. The, uh, I'll have to talk loud in the high. I'm assuming that ring is in the speakers. It's not just in my head. Is that y'all hearing it too? You, you don't hear a ring at all. <laughs> you know, there is some, you know, some good things about going deaf, Barry. Uh, you know, getting older. Don't have to worry about those high frequencies anymore. Matthew 10, verse 1 through verse 4. And when he had called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out, and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip, and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the publican, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Labaius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. We have now come a year or more into the three-and-a-half-year, we think, ministry of our Lord. At least the three-and-a-half-year chronology seems to fit things better than anything else. And we're perhaps approaching the halfway point, and it may surprise you to learn that it really was not until about this time that Jesus actually called aside these twelve men that will from here on be known as the twelve. You may remember, if you think back over the last few weeks, that some very critical things have been happening here in this sort of midpoint of our Lord's ministry. First of all, there has been a shift in the ministry of our Lord away from what we might say sickness to sin. Much of his early ministry, the miraculous signs that he gave had to do with healing men of various infirmities. But beginning with that day when they lowered that man, that paralytic man, through the roof in front of Jesus, when he said to that man, thy sins be forgiven, there has been a shift away from bodily infirmities to man's real problem, which is his sin. And that has been going on now for some time. We also see at this point that there is increasing hostility arising between Jesus and his teaching and the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. That came to the forefront in this conflict over the Sabbath day, whether it was lawful for his disciples to take the grain in their hands and rub it and blow away the husk and eat it. Whether it was lawful for Jesus to heal the man with the paralytic arm on the Sabbath day. And as we left things, you may remember that the scribes and Pharisees held a council to see how they might destroy him. So there is increasing hostility between the Pharisees and Christ. You'll notice that it is about this time then that Jesus calls specially these twelve disciples. What Matthew joins together here in verse 1, Mark separates into two events. Turn back, if you would, to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3. Let us look closely at how Mark explains the calling of the twelve. Mark 3, verse 13. 
We read, and he goeth up into a mountain and calleth unto him whom he would. And they came unto him. And he appointed or ordained twelve that they should be with him and that he might send them forth to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out devils. And then he gives you the list of the names. Now, it's interesting that we notice here that this is a choice that Jesus makes out of many that are following him. There's more than 12, you see, that are following Jesus at this time. Out of the number that are following him, Jesus calls 12 to come unto him and ordains them for this special role. Notice that the three things that are mentioned here that this choice of these twelve men included. First of all, that they would be with him. We learn that for the next year or two, that they are his constant companions, his intimate associates. In fact, to his disciples is given instruction and training that is not given to the masses of men, to the multitudes that are following Christ. In fact, at one point, they ask him, why are you speaking to the people in parables? And he says, well, to them it is not given to know the things of the kingdom of heaven, but to you it is given. And he explains the parable to his disciples. So we see that, first of all, they are to have a special, intimate, close relationship with Christ. They are to be eyewitnesses of his ministry and of his life. Then secondly, we see that they are to be sent out by him. In the last part of Mark three fourteen. he's going to send them forth. We sort of get our word apostle from that. The word apostle literally in Greek means one who is sent forth or sent out. But the idea is, is that Christ will send these men out as his personal representatives. They will bear his message out in the world. And then thirdly, the third thing involved with this ordination is that he will empower them. He will give them power to perform the very same signs that have accompanied his work. Casting out devils, healing the sick, and so forth. You'll also notice that there are twelve of them. Now why twelve? Well, twelve certainly is a symbolic number. When we think of the Old Testament history of Israel, we have twelve patriarchs. We have twelve tribes that came out of those patriarchs. We have the twelve spies, one out of each tribe, you remember, that was chosen to go in and spy out the land of Canaan. So there it seems to be some association with the fact that there's twelve of them. In fact, uh, you remember in the book of Revelation, as you see the New Jerusalem, uh, it has twelve foundations. The name of those twelve foundations is the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So you understand that there is this sort of symbolic association of these 12 men with the history of Israel. And in fact, Jesus himself carries that forward because he says of these 12 that you'll you'll reign on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And notice that it is a deliberate choice. Now, we may argue about election in other areas of life, but we certainly cannot argue about election here. If we say, whose choice was this? Did they choose him or did he choose them? Clearly, he chose, as the scripture says, whom he would. He picked them. He chose them. Uh, Even the kids here, they're old enough to play ball. They know this concept. They get out in the schoolyard or with a gang of kids somewhere, and they choose sides. I I want him. You know, he hits good. He feels good. He's got a ball. He's got a glove. I want him. I pick him. 
Well, that's what's happening here. Jesus is choosing out of the multitude of disciples that are following him at this time, 12 for a special situation, a special office, as we say. It is interesting and instructive for us to look and learn at this choice that he made. Now, first of all, I want to point out to you the fact that it is rather unexpected that he would choose 12 men to do these things. You see, we're used to thinking perhaps in terms of Christ's work being just that. It's Christ's work. You know, all of what the kingdom of heaven is all about is about him. And certainly there is something about his work that cannot be duplicated by us. It cannot even be mimicked by us. There is something peculiar and special to what Jesus did in his earthly ministry. Certainly his death on the cross, his resurrection, his exaltation to heaven. He is unique in that sense. But there is another sense in which Christ's work is not finished. Yes, in one sense, he finished the work on earth that his father gave him to do. But my friend, the work of salvation is not all over. As we think of the death of Christ, I asked you when Christ died, how many people were saved at that moment? And the answer is absolutely none. It's secure. It's bought and paid for. It's in the bag. But my friend, salvation is not salvation until it is delivered, until it is communicated. Uh, Billy Joe, you may have a warehouse full of stuff down there, but till it gets to the farmer out in the field, nothing of any consequence happened. That's what's happened here. Christ has died. The merit, the blessing of what he has done resides in him, and it must be communicated to people out here in the world, and it will be communicated by certain means. I want to stress this because we have on the one hand the primitive Baptist view that believes in what's called eternal justification. That believes that justification of sinners took place back there in eternity when God chose certain men to salvation. That the very choice of God has made them justified men in his sight. There are those who argue that position very, very strongly. This just takes one verse of Scripture for me to understand that's just not the case because Jesus talked about two men that went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, one a publican. And he said of the publican, he went down to his house justified. And as my friend E.W. Johnson used to say, the fact that he went down to his house justified meant that he wasn't justified when he went up to the temple. He found justification there. Do you understand what I'm saying? No, we are not justified in eternity past. But we have another idea that when Christ died at the cross, instantly all those for whom he died, all the elect, are instantly justified. And we say that's not a scriptural idea either. When he died at the cross, their salvation has been bought, it has been secured, it's, as I said, in the bag, but it's still not theirs. It must be delivered, as it were, unto them. Would you turn to 2 Thessalonians 2? And I think this verse, of all the verses I can think of, sort of sets forward the the idea that I'm trying to get across here. The securing of salvation is one thing. The communication of salvation is quite another. It must be communicated. It must be applied to the recipients before they are to be considered justified and saved. Second Thessalonians 2, verse 13. Here's a wonderful text on the doctrine of election. Second Thessalonians 2, 13. 
Paul says, but we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. In other words, Paul is here saying that we are thankful to God for your very existence as Christians. We give God thanks for you. Notice that tells you something about who's responsible here. It's all up to them. Why not just thank them for becoming Christians? You know, we thank you. Thank you very much for listening to us. Thank you very much for receiving what we had to say. Thank you very much for choosing Jesus. And instead he says, thank God for you. Praise God that you are Christians, that you are believers, that you are followers of Christ. Praise God. Why? Because he chose you. You know the old poster in the recruiting station? Uncle Sam wants you. That's what Jesus has done. He came along and he says, I'll take you. You say, I don't remember voting. Well, first of all, you're way too young to vote. You weren't around when the election was held, you understand. It's his choice for the foundation of the world. God has win from the beginning. You weren't around then. God from the beginning chose you. To salvation. But notice that's not all. He didn't just choose the objects of salvation. The persons. He chose the means. He chose you to salvation through the work of the Spirit. Sanctification of the Spirit. And something else. Belief of the truth. Do you understand the concept then that God has, yes, chosen that you, the elect, will be saved. But he's chosen that you will be saved this way. The Spirit will work in your heart and life to bring you to saving faith of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And from that fact, we can reason, as Paul did in Romans chapter 10, that therefore, if they must believe, if they've got to call on the name of this Lord, they can't call on him until they believe on him. And they can't believe on him until they've heard of him. And they can't. And can't hear unless a preacher go and preach this gospel to him. Do you see how Paul is reasoning here? Here is the very reason it is necessary to be evangelical. The very reason that we send out missionaries is because that's how God has ordained that his elect shall be saved. On the one hand, I know we have opponents that would say, well, if you believe in election, then why in the world would you send a missionary out? And there are those who have perverted the doctrines of God's sovereign grace, to reason exactly that way. You may be familiar that when William Carey brought up the idea of back in England in the 1800s of taking the gospel to India, there was one, John Ryland Sr., that stood up and said, if God wants to save the Indians, he can do it without any help from you or me. Now that's this doctrine taken to a perverted conclusion. But I would argue from the other hand that And I've heard missionaries say this. In fact, one missionary said at one point, he says, you know, when I went to the mission field, there was no doctrines that I hated worse than election and predestination. I hated those doctrines. He said, after 30 years on the mission field, after seeing the hardness of men's heart and the impossibility of man on his own believing this gospel, there's no doctrine I love any better than predestination and election. You see this point? Unless it's God, unless God does something, they're not going to believe. And so the idea that William Carey and the others who began the modern missionary movement, this is a little fact that our Armenian brethren 
prefer to ignore that those men were not Arminians, they were Calvinists. Believing strongly in the sovereignty of God, in election, in predestination. But here's how they reasoned. If God has chosen some from every nation on the earth to believe the gospel, to be his people, if they must hear the gospel to become his children, then somebody's got to take the gospel to them. If God has chosen some from every nation, he's chosen some Indians over there in India as his children. And this means that somebody needs to take the gospel to them. So it is simply an understanding that God not only has chosen the end, he's chosen the objects of salvation, he's chosen you know, who it is that will be saved, the end of salvation, what salvation is, but he's also chosen the means. This is how they will be saved. And because of that reason, there's a sense then in which the work of Christ is not finished. And I hope you'll not accuse me of being blasphemous here. I'm saying that should be obvious to us. As obvious as we say the nose on our face. That there's an ongoing work of Christ being done through his people. And that's the reason he's choosing the twelve. He's preparing them. He's training them for work that they will continue after he departs and goes on to glory. There's still work to be done. May I point out that Luke, as he begins the book of Acts, says... That his former letter, O Theophilus, was of all those things that Jesus began both to teach and do. The Gospel of Luke contains the things Jesus began to do, what he did at the first. Now the book of Acts shows you what Jesus continues to do. But you notice if you were to call the book of Acts a movie, let's call it Jesus 2 You know, we got Jesus 1, that's the Gospel of Luke. Here's the sequel, Jesus 2. That you would think that Jesus just has a little cameo role to play. I mean, you just barely see him. He's right there in the first chapter and then he disappears. But the point is, is that no, you ought to still see Jesus throughout the entire book of Acts. He's still in control. He's still calling the shots. But he's not here physically on earth. It is through his spirit that he's directing the lives of his people. And so Paul is converted. How does that happen? Jesus did it. Paul gets sent out to the far ends of the world. How did that happen? Jesus did it. Do you understand the principle? Jesus is still at work, now working through his people. By the way, there's a sense in which the sufferings of Jesus continue. Now I know I'm getting in hot water. You mean Jesus is still suffering? There is a sense. It's biblical. In fact, just think of the words that Paul or Saul of Tarsus was told on the road to Damascus. Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? If you were Saul, you might have said, well, Jesus, I wasn't persecuting you. I'm, I'm not doing anything to you. I'm just, it's these Christians down here. But Jesus makes it clear to persecute them was to persecute him. They are his body. And in that sense, we as his body, the sufferings of Jesus continue in the sufferings of his people. Let let me show you in Colossians 1, this is a fascinating text. It opens up all sorts of interesting ideas here. But Colossians chapter 1. If you think I'm being explicit here in talking about this, just think of the way Paul describes it here. Colossians 1 verse 24 starts with a pronoun who. 
helps to go back and see who the who is. And the who here is Paul himself. The last words of verse 23 of Colossians 1 is, I, Paul, have made a minister of this gospel. So I, Paul, is the who here. I, Paul, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. In other words, I'm rejoicing in the sufferings that I'm having to endure because I'm filling up that which is behind. You ever been behind on a car note? You know what it is to be behind. I've got to fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. In other words, there's a sense in which Christ still is suffering in his people in order that their ministry go forth. Do you understand the point is the head suffered, his sufferings are over, but the body's still here on earth. And how does ministry go forth? It goes through through the suffering of the members of the body. I don't know. Again, I go back to last week when we talked about Paul's ministry as an apostle. I mean, why would you beat the tar out of this guy? He's your hand-picked instrument. I mean, he's your point man. I mean, put yourself in this position. Jesus has chosen Paul to be his apostle to the Gentiles, to take the gospel out in the Gentile world. And then he just beats the tar out of him. Come on! Isn't that how it happened? I mean, he makes his first trip, his first missionary journey, and how's it end? Stoned! Out from under a pile of rocks he crawls, left for dead. As I mentioned, every boat he got on sunk. Why? How is it if Jesus is calling the shots, why would you treat your apostle like that? He's your point man. You want to, you, you think you want him to ride first class. Man, if he's on the boat, you're always going to have a fair breeze blowing. Easy trip. Got Paul. You know, I got the Lord's Apostle on board. My friend, that just means you better make sure you've got a lifeboat somewhere around. You better find you a place to hide when the wind comes. Do you understand? Why is it that Paul, of all people, had to undergo such suffering? And what he's explaining is that's the way ministry has always worked. It worked that way in the case of Christ himself, and it works that way in the case of those who are part of his body. Ministry, life, always goes forth from suffering. Well, stop right there, but we dare not. May I point out, these were then, these twelve, uniquely gifted, chosen men. I'm saying uniquely, because again, we have those around today, all the way ranging from the Mormons on one end to the apostolic Church of God on the other end, who claim that there's still apostles around. Of course, the Roman Catholic Church believes that Peter's authority is passed down to the present Pope. I'm saying that, no, this office cannot be duplicated. Notice again the qualifications. They had to be with him. They were eyewitnesses of his ministry and of his work. They were especially eyewitnesses of his resurrection. I certainly agree. Paul is certainly in a special category, and he himself admits that. We won't get into that today. But the very fact of what apostle was called to do means that there can be no apostles in an ongoing sense. Generically, yes, the word simply means one sent out. I guess any missionary that we would send out with the gospel could be considered an apostle in a generic sense. But in the special sense of which we speak here, no. 
There are these. Because of their peculiar stance in history, they bridge the gap between those believe because they saw and those who, like us, believe who have never seen. I know, you and I, we come, if you come from a, a Baptistic, independent, evangelical stream, we, we're sort of like Southerners when it comes to theology. We like, we don't like to be told what to do. We have this independent streak in us. You know what I mean? And we don't, you know, the very idea that the Roman Catholics would say we gotta go through some man sitting there in Rome just, just galls us. I think that's one reason why Roman Catholicism never has worked very well in the South. Because we, you know, we just don't like to be told what to do. And the very fact that you would suggest that somehow I need apostles galls me. You know, I'm saying, no, it's me and Jesus. That's all I need. Well, my friend, have you ever stopped to think that what you know of Jesus, of his life, of his deeds, of his words, you learn from apostles? That you are here reading apostolic documents? Do you understand what I'm saying? That those men bridged the gap between a generation that saw with their own eyes his works and a generation like us who only know because we have heard their witness, their testimony. They bore eyewitness testimony and God confirmed it. Well, I must go on. Secondly, I see that word strikes fear in the hearts of many this morning. Two, two more just brief points. First of all, or secondly, I should say, of all, consider the subjects of his choice. We, we are familiar with the specter of the president-elect gathering around him those men that will be his advisors, his confidants, those men who will be his cabinet comprise his cabinet. And uh, when a president chooses those kinds of men, uh, what kind of men does he pick? I mean, generally speaking. Uh, you might say he picks fellow crooks like himself. Well, yeah, that's fine. But I mean, generally, if he's going to pick his advisors, he's going to pick smart people, renowned people. People of high standing and staff. You know, I've never gotten called yet by a president to be a you know member of his cabinet. I don't know why. Y'all figure that out? And I'm sure there's probably nobody in this room. Why is it that none of us have ever been asked to serve a president as his advisor? Uh, the point is, we just not considered very smart, not very bright, not very worthy. And and you might expect that if Jesus is going to hand pick. These men to be his associates, these men who are to carry on his work after he's gone, that he would look out among Israel and find the brightest and the best men of statue, men of learning, men of the university, and those, you know, to be his brain trust, his right-hand men, men that are capable and able. And you know instead who he picks? Well, I can sum it up. He picks sort of the riffraff. Fishermen. Now, I have nothing against fishermen. I mean, it's a good, honest living. But if we're, you know, on a scale of one to ten, if we think of the brightest and best and the ones that... I mean, how much smarts do you have to have to be a fisherman? Not a lot. 
You just go out and you don't throw the nets in and so forth. It's sort of low, menial labor. Do you, do you understand? I mean, it's honest work. I don't think there's any fishermen, not commercial fishermen anyway, in our midst. I don't want to insult anybody. It's good, honest, hard work. But if you're working your way up the ladder of status, fishermen's way down here at the bottom somewhere. Low man on the totem pole. Publicans. Well, I've already dwelt on that and talking about the calling of Matthew, so I won't beat that horse anymore. Publicans of all people to choose. My point is, it was not those that were considered the brightest and the best, those in the places of influence, high standing and status in the eyes of the people. It was the lowly. Well, let's put it in the words of the Sanhedrin. When Peter and John, after Jesus' resurrection, went and confronted the Sanhedrin with the gospel, it says they took notice that these men were unlearned and ignorant men. Well, that's not my words. That's their words. Unlearned and ignorant. That pretty well sums it up. That's about what they were by nature. Unlearned. They hadn't been to school. Didn't know anything. Been brought up, knew how to work with their hands, unlearned and ignorant men. But it says they also took notice that they had been with Jesus. And that, of course, is the important consideration here. Notice who he picks, the kinds of men. Some had been his disciples from the very beginning, since John's ministry. Others had just followed for a little while. Some were hot-headed, impetuous, like Peter Impulsive, acts, speaks, talks first, thinks second, you know the kind. Others were shy, introverted, people like Thomas always, we don't call him doubting Thomas for nothing. Some, as I mentioned, were used to hard work, working with their hands, putting in an honest day's work for an honest day's dollar, as we say. I like the way our brethren in Mexico say this. It's Simon the Canonista. Is that right? Cananita. It gives you the idea, you know, we got the Zapatistas and all of that down in Mexico. Revolutionaries. And that's exactly what Simon was. He was a revolutionary. Simon the Zealot, he's called elsewhere. The Zealot was a political party that wanted to throw off Roman rule by force, sort of an underground guerrilla warfare. Imagine, out of, I'm just pointing out the sheer variety of the people that Christ chose. I mean, you got Matthew, who has gone to work for the Romans, and you got Simon, the Canaanita, the zealot, throwing off the role of Rome by force. How opposite. You've got impetuous Peter, you've got doubting Thomas. Do, you see, we sort of think these guys were sort of like cookie-cutter. We talk about cookie-cutter Christians. Well, these were not cookie-cutter disciples. They were a ragtag, motley crew that in the hand of Christ would change the course of world history. And then notice the empowerment of these men. God calls them, Christ calls them here for his work, and he empowers them for the work, for the task at hand, which in this case involved miraculous deeds and acts. The same sort of miraculous signs that he himself had performed are now to be performed by them. For the same reason, to confirm, to validate the message that they brought. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's the reason Christ performs these miracles. Now that will be the reason his apostles. It's a validation by God of what these men are saying. 
Now, I would say to you that this is one of the great things that is unique, peculiar to our Lord, that sets him apart from any others. There were other men who had come upon the scene who had performed miraculous signs and wonders. Elijah, Elisha, Moses. Think of all the miracles that occurred in the Old Testament day. Did Jesus raise men from the dead? So did Elisha and Elijah. Did he heal the sick? So did they. Did he perform miraculous things? So did they. So you say, well, Jesus no, not really different from them. Well, no, there's a few things that show the fact that he was peculiar. And one of which is this right here. I don't know if it, you see it. I don't know if you've noticed it. But do you realize that Christ not only has the power to do this himself, he has the power to pass it on? My friend, nobody in the Old Testament could do that. One time a fellow asked, Elijah had a servant by the name of Elisha. Elisha said, now when you get caught up to heaven, I'd like to have the double portion of your spirit. Now, he's not really asking for twice as much. He's just like a son in a family asking for the double portion in the sense of being the one who carries on. He's asking, can I secede you as prophet? And Elijah says, I don't know about that. I tell you what, if you see me go up into heaven, I guess you got it. But if not, you know, this is out of my hands. I can't give you that. Do you realize that what Christ is doing here at his will is giving to these 12 men the same sort of power to perform miracles, signs, and wonders that he himself had employed. There's no one else like that. And these men went out, and not only do you remember in that discourse the last night that Jesus was with his disciples, he says, the things that I do, greater things will you do. They will go forth not only with his message, they will go forth with his power. And they will succeed in their mission. Now, I'm going to skip over that, that, and that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, me. Always, it seems, where does time go? And I'm, I'm going to get rid of this jacket here for a minute. I want to take their case and apply it to us as we close this morning. I want you to notice that just as they were chosen, so were we. Were they picked? So were we. Now, not for the same office. We're not apostles. But we have been picked, just like they've been picked. And I want you to look around the room for a moment. You remember we talked about the variety, the different kinds of men that Jesus chose as his apostles, as his disciples. I think you know where I'm going with this. Just look around the room for a moment. You talk about a variety. I, I guess that's one of the fascinating things about our church is that we are not a cookie cutter. We don't all look alike. We don't all think alike. We don't all come from the same backgrounds. Don't all do the same kind of work. I've been in churches, a lot of churches, where everybody there is just like they got stamped out of the cookie cutter. Everybody thinks alike, talks alike, does exactly the same thing. We're not like that. And I'm saying in a lot of ways, we're more like the disciples that Jesus chose. We're not like that. Now, there are some things of which we are one. One Lord. One gospel. One baptism. One faith. One doctrine. That unites us. But then on the other hand, man, we're about as weird a bunch as you'll ever find. About as diverse a bunch. And I'm saying that's not bad. That's healthy. That's what Christ chose. 
He chose some from all sorts. Just think about it for a moment. What if it was the other way, that you had to be a particular kind of man before you could be chosen? You know, white Anglo-Saxon. Sorry, Sammy. You know, what if you got to be white Anglo-American? You know, Sorry, if you're Mexican, that's tough. You know, you got to have skin colored like we do. You've got to, you know, like the same kind of foods we like. you got to come from the same kind of background, do the same kind of work. You know, how monotonous, number one. But God clearly, for his own purposes, has chosen men from so many backgrounds with so many different strengths and weaknesses because he places us in a body where we are not all equipped nor gifted for the same work. We're one, one body. We've tasted of one spirit. We believe in one Lord. And yet we're as different as night and day when it comes to our function in the body of Christ. Some folks in our congregation can get up like Kenny and lead us in song. The others in our congregation can't carry a tune in a bucket. Some folks in our congregation get up and teach on a subject another person couldn't possibly teach if, they, if their life depended on it. Some folks, I tell you, Rusty and Rhonda, we never think about, never even say anything about it. I'm telling you, you see how the grounds look out there? Man, last week is like a golf course out there. You know who does that? No, nobody says anything about it. They just, that's, I mean, they've got a gift of ministry and of service. Do you understand? They don't get to stand up here in the pulpit where everybody looks at them like me. I mean, I, you say, what are your function? I guess I'm the mouth. <laughs> I guess so. I'm the mouth of the church. And aren't you glad that we're all different? Aren't you glad we're not all the mouth? That we're not just one great big mouth? You say, well, what would it be necessary if we were just all the hand? You know, you'd have a hand that's just busy doing this, that, and that. Hadn't, hadn't, doesn't ever think on anything, doesn't ever have any doctrinal concepts, or just, just does. Well, what if we're all the brain? You know, what if we all are thinkers, or the seer, the eye? You know, we all sit around and just think on heavenly things. Never do a thing. You know, the eye is not a very functional organ when you think about it. It's a receptive organ. Do you understand my drift? That's not God's purpose that we all be alike. It wasn't that way with the apostles. It's not that way with us today. And that's the way he designed it. That my strengths and your strengths don't coincide. That you have strengths that I don't have. And I have weaknesses that you don't have. And I can value you and I can profit from your input and you can profit from mine. And for what does he pick us? Well, he picks us for the work of the ministry, to extend his kingdom in this earth. The very same work that he began, we are now to carry it on. And just as then, it is through him that the power is given to us to perform this ministry. I uh, can't ever read the list of names without looking at that last one. You notice the list in the New Testament? Peter's always mentioned first. Judas always mentioned last. And Judas, when he's mentioned, is never mentioned a fact apart from the fact that he's the one that betrayed Jesus. It's like you, you say, well, you know, just get over it. Well, I'm sorry, the apostles never got over it. They never got over this fact. Because you see, Judas's act 
of betraying Christ was not just the normal act of unbelief that we run into day in, day out out here in the world. This man was specially chosen, handpicked. He had this intimate association with Christ, intimate acquaintance. He was taken into the inner circle to hear things that others didn't hear, to see things that others didn't see. You understand that his act of betrayal is the highest act of apostasy imaginable. In fact, it is so hideous and heinous that we sometimes would say, well, man, didn't Jesus make a goof on that one? Boy, he got 11, okay. 11 out of 12. We'd almost think that he made a mistake were it not for text after text that reminds us that, no, from the beginning, Jesus knew who would betray him. And in that last night, he says, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil, who even with the act of putting the sop, the bread in the sop, he says to Judas, What thou doest, doest quickly. Oh, he knew all about it. It was purposed. It was predestined that he be betrayed by one of his own. The prophets had prophesied of it. David had foretold it in the Psalms that one who eats bread with him would lift up his heel against him. It was predestined. It was purposed. And yet at the same time, my friend, it is never whitewashed. It is never covered over that somehow, well, it's all right, since after all, somebody had to do the dirty work. Somebody had to make sure he was crucified. Somebody had to betray him. No, you'll never see the apostles approaching it like that. It is the highest act of rebellion, of betrayal, that we can find in human history. Jesus knew what it was like to have those that he loved, those that he had blessed, those that he had brought into his inner circle. He knew what it was like to be betrayed by them. I find in talking to pastors, if you ask them what's the hardest thing about the ministry, this is what they'll tell you. Dealing with this. I have a dear friend of mine who told me of a man that he had a wonderful relationship with, just lived a little ways from him. Uh, the last time he ever saw the man, the guy called him up wanting to know if he would be able to spare a couple hours every week to spend just special time with he and the pastor alone. And my friend said, oh, sure, I'd love to do that. You just call me back and tell me when we can get together. He said that's the last time he ever saw him said the guy moved, the family picked up and moved, didn't even leave a forwarding address, called over there to find out what was going on. The phone had been disconnected. said about two months later, one of his families ran into him down in southern Alabama at a Walmart. To this day, has no idea. Someone that he had this close, intimate relationship with, all of a sudden, out of the blue, just as it were, drops off the face of the earth without so much as a goodbye. I find pastor after pastor tells me that's the most difficult part of the ministry. I can't make it any easier, but I can say this. Jesus experienced it as well. He knew all about it. Do you think he was just blowing smoke when Judas came that night and kissed him on the cheek? 
when Jesus said, Friend, friend. This was his friend that had betrayed him, that had sold him out. And you who may be lost this morning, I hope that in this, I realize that most of what I've said today is directed to the saved as we think about the act of Christ choosing his disciples and still in the choosing business today. But I hope if nothing else comes across to you this morning, if you're sitting here and lost, that you realize that salvation is more than just nodding your head to a bunch of questions the preacher asks you. It's more than praying a little prayer down here at the front or walking down this aisle. Salvation involves you following Christ. Going where He says go. Staying where He says stay. Doing what He says do. Believing what He says believe. Obeying what He says obey. It is a life Long thing, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, never a day off from being a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's what involves. I don't want anybody to pull the wool over your eyes. I don't want you to ever say, well, now, Brother Mark never told me that. I'm telling you. That's what it is. You say, why in the world? Why in the world would someone... Leave it all, as these twelve men have done. They walked off from everything to follow Christ. Why in the world would they do it? I'm telling you, they saw something in Christ they had never seen before in anyone else. They saw, in the words of John, they saw a glory. They saw a beauty in the face of Jesus Christ. They had never met anyone like this. And He captivated their minds, their souls, their hearts. They could not go on living as they used to live. They had to bow to the authority, to the rule, to what they saw in Jesus Christ. And I'm asking you today, what do you see when you look into His face? Oh, you can't visualize it. And the artist, they don't have a hoot of what He looked like. But in the portrait that the New Testament gives you of the life and person of Jesus Christ, what do you see? Do you see glory? Do you see beauty? Do you see one who loved you so that he who was so high became so low that sinners might be taken so high? Do you see that? Do you see that he became poor so that you might be made rich? Do you see that He bore your sin that you might wear His righteousness? And have you fallen in love with this Savior that you see in no one else what you see in Him? My friend, that's what it means to become a Christian. Oh, it's to believe some facts. It's to believe some things. But it's to believe on that person. And it's to commit my life into the hands of that person. To do with me as He will, come hell or high water, as we say. Whatever He wishes to bring into my life. So be it. He's Lord. He's Master. He's calling the shots. And I've surrendered my all into His hands. I trust that might be your heart cry today. If you've never come to know Him, that today might be the day that the scales are removed from your eyes and your eyes are open.
fall in love with Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, please take the bumbling, stumbling words of this preacher and pierce hearts. Lord, as we think about your Son coming into this world and choosing men, choosing the lowly, not the mighty, choosing the, those of no reputation, no status, and employing them in his service, may we wonder and marvel at it all that our God should condescend to use us in his kingdom's work, that we should be called to be co-laborers with Christ and with God. Thank you for, for what you're doing in our midst, for working in lives, for taking us and making us vessels of your work, instruments to bring about your purpose in this world. And Lord, we long to see the kingdom of Christ extended. For Father, we believe to that mission we are called to carry on the work of our Lord to confront others with His claims, with His Word, with His Gospel, His truth. Father, we are to come and be His ambassadors, His representatives before men, to plead with them to be reconciled to the God that they have offended and to be reconciled in the very blood of Jesus, God's Son. Lord, enable us for the task. It is a daunting one. It is an overwhelming one in our day. We live in such a weird day. The lines, Father, to our eyes are not clearly drawn anymore. It's all fuzzy and hazy. But, Lord, we know that men are exactly the same, just as lost as they ever were. The gospel that saves is the same gospel, and the Jesus to whom they must bow and believe is the same Jesus. So may we be faithful, Father, in this our day. It's our turn. The apostles have passed off the scene. The previous generations of faithful men are now gone. Father, we're on the field of action today. Father, may we not fumble. May we not drop the ball. May we run and run well with our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Help us to persevere. Help us to overcome in the midst of trials and sufferings. May we, as Paul, glory in those things. Glory in our infirmities and in our trials. Glory in our sufferings. Knowing that out of those things you work and you minister grace to your people. So, Father, may we not be as the world around us, griping and complaining at every little thing that goes wrong. But may we rejoice that we're counted worthy to suffer for the name, the high, worthy name of Jesus, our Savior and our Master. Speak to our hearts according to our need, for it's in Christ we pray. Amen.